Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From Ars Technica, a new study shows that telling an AI model to, quote, take a deep breath caused math scores to soar. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. And what they did is they used other AI models to improve prompting. The paper, if you want to look at it in depth, is called Large Language Models as Optimizers, and you can find it on ARXIV. And this is where deep mind scientists introduce what they call optimization by prompting, or OPRO. And this new approach sidesteps the limitations of traditional math-based optimizers by using natural language to guide LLMs in problem solving. And by natural language, we mean just everyday human speech. So it gets a little jargony here. So instead of formally defining the optimization problem and deriving the update step with a programmed solver, this is in the researcher's language, <laughs> we describe the optimization problem in natural language, then instruct the LLM to iteratively generate new solutions based on the problem description and the previously found solutions. But that was that was his natural language. What about <laughs> the rest of the world's natural language? Yeah. I think that's kind of what they were hitting on. If you are a researcher using jargon like this, maybe you got to dumb it down a step. <laughs> so he's so proud of himself. He's like, I stooped to slang, y'all. Like <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And the language models respond better to that, in part because guess what they were trained on? Yeah, normal people. Just, oh God. And they're talking about math problems that are the kind of math word problems that normally give us headaches if we go back to our schooling, right? Beth bakes four two dozen batches of cookies in a week. If the cookies are shared among 16 people equally, how many cookies does each person consume? So if you just fed a chatbot a word problem like that by itself, it does okay. I mean, a lot of the large language models are not really known for their accuracy at this point. but if you prefix that entire math word problem with let's think step by step and then have that problem pasted mm -hmm. after it, the accuracy of the AI model's results almost always improves. Mm. And this works very well with ChatGPT. So building off of that earlier finding, in this latest study, DeepMind researchers found take a deep breath. Okay, that's just rude. Well, <laughs> it's condescending, we, really. You're, well, you're human-splaining. Like, <laughs> uh, that may be the case according to our own human biases, but that was the most effective prompt when used with Google's Palm 2 language model. Apparently, that phrase achieved the top accuracy score of 80.2%. Wow. And that's in a test against something called GSM-8K, which is a data set of grade school math word problems. Without any special prompting, they only scored 34% accuracy. That's just the math word problem by itself. And okay, no, it's not that it has a deep shame-based complexing process that <laughs> when you neg it, it does better. No, that's not the case. Again, this is because of the data set it was trained on, right? Some of that scraping includes things like Q&A forums or tutorial bulletin boards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those have the example of, 
let's take a deep breath or let's think step by step before showing what is a more carefully reasoned solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is part of what people forget, I think, with ChatGPT, especially like 3.5 versus 4. I've talked about this before, but like they're just totally different leagues. But like this ChatGPT is designed to be the exact generic middle of all population for solving all of these different problems. Mm -hmm. So it's just not going to give you anything at a high level of complexity right off the bat Mm -hmm. because it's meant to service literally anyone and everyone. Mm -hmm. So prompt engineering is definitely a special interest of mine right now. And and another game changer that I've come across is telling the large language model, ask me questions before you give me your Mm. answer. That way you can prompt it to identify if there are gaps in its knowledge or if it needs to get more specific. Right, which is good because being a prompt manager might be one of the only jobs left. Yeah, pretty much. That's where we're headed. So get good at it, y'all. Well, this study, again, was about how to do prompt engineering via AI. So they're already looking to take that job. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, take a deep breath. Think about it step by step. We'll figure something out. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com, and it's titled, Spyware Can Infect Your Phone or Computer Via the Ads You See Online. Of course. Yeah. One more thing to worry about. All right. Yep. (laughs) And I mean, honestly, this has always been the case, but- Yeah, I've had it happen to me, so it's, yeah. Yeah. Like, if you see an ad, it is downloaded onto your computer, and it's just a matter of whether or not your computer has the updates and the capabilities to defend against it, essentially. But each day, you leave digital traces of what you did, where you went, who you communicated with, what you bought, what you're thinking of buying- and much more. This massive data serves as a library of clues for personalized ads, which are sent to you by an automated marketplace of advertisers, publishers, and ad brokers that operate at lightning speed. The ad networks are designed to shield your identity, but companies and governments are able to combine that information with other data, particularly phone location, to identify you and track your movements and online activity. Ooh. Yeah. More invasive yet is spyware, malicious software that a government agent, private investigator, or criminal installs on someone's phone or computer without their knowledge or consent. Some forms of spyware can take control of a phone, including turning on its microphone and camera. Now, one thing I will pause to say about these ad networks is uh, they are not designed to shield your identity. No. They actually know everything about all of your devices, where they are, who you are. I've worked in tech companies where you get to see the Mm -hmm. network graph of massive, massive ad brokers. And I mean, there's literally like a hundred companies you've never heard of worth millions and billions Mm -hmm. of dollars just making money off selling you, basically. Mm -hmm. So, some context from the informed. Uh, (laughs) The bitter and cynical. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, according to an investigative report by the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, an Israeli technology company called Insanet has developed the means of delivering spyware via online ad networks, turning some targeted ads into Trojan horses. According to the report, there's no defense against the spyware, and the Israeli government has given Insanet approval to sell the technology. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Internet spyware, Sherlock, is not the first spyware that can be installed on a phone without the need to trick the phone's owner into clicking on a malicious link or downloading a malicious file. NSO's iPhone hacking Pegasus, for instance, is one of the most controversial spyware tools to emerge in the past five years. Pegasus relies on vulnerabilities in Apple's iOS to infiltrate a phone undetected. 
What sets Incinet's Sherlock apart from Pegasus is its exploitation of ad networks rather than vulnerabilities in phones. Mm -hmm. A Sherlock user creates an ad campaign that narrowly focuses on the target's demographic and location and places a spyware-laden ad with an ad exchange. Once that ad is served to a web page that the target views, the spyware is secretly installed on the target's phone or computer. And a little bit of technical detail, but the reason this is probably possible is because a lot of these ads will just serve any old content, including JavaScript, which is like literally executable code in your browser. So the moment you download that, it just runs and then boom, you're compromised. Yeah, well, that's how it happened when it happened to me. It wasn't spyware and it wasn't sanctioned. It was basically a completely legitimate site was using a third party ad servicer. And then someone else had scammed that third-party ad servicer saying, here's an ad we want to run, but it was actually malware. And so it was a straight-up horrible virus that killed the machine, and we got it cleared off, and then we went back to that site and it happened again, and that's where we're like, no, 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 this is where this is coming from. And we ran it down and it was a whole thing. But basically, a completely normal site was delivering a virus to everyone who opened their page for about a day and a half until they figured it out. I thought Pornhub was safe. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this is why ad blockers are important, why Mm -hmm. the economic model based on ads just fundamentally doesn't work because these ads require tracking in order to monetize. Like literally there are entire industries built on saying who delivered what ad and Mm -hmm. who actually gets the credit and the baloney slice of, you know, cents (laughs) on the dollar. Uh And it all exists just to track you so that you can be monetized essentially mm-hmm. and along with that comes every other possible scripting payload i uh definitely don't have a firm position on this issue no not but, at all. um <laughs> yeah <laughs> but moving on so ad networks have been used to deliver malicious software for years a practice dubbed malvertising in most cases the malware is aimed at computers rather than phones and it's designed to lock a user's data as part of a ransomware attack or steal passwords to access online accounts or organizational networks the ad networks constantly scan for malvertising and rapidly block it when detected. Spyware, on the other hand, tends to be aimed at phones, it's targeted at specific people or narrow categories of people, and is designed to clandestinely obtain sensitive information and monitor someone's activities. Once spyware infiltrates your system, it can record keystrokes, take screenshots, and use various tracking mechanisms before transmitting your stolen data to the spyware's creator. While its actual capabilities are still under investigation, the new Sherlock spyware is at least capable of infiltration, monitoring, data capture, and data transmission, according to the Hyretz report. So, I mean, it's like, what else is there besides right. just <laughs> nuking your computer, I guess? <laughs> so, from 2011 to 2023, at least 74 governments engaged in contracts with commercial companies to acquire spyware or digital forensics technology. National governments. Uh (laughs) Law enforcement agencies might similarly use spyware as part of investigative efforts, especially in cases involving cybercrime, organized crime, or national security threats. Companies, meanwhile, might use spyware to monitor employees' computer activities, ostensibly to protect intellectual property, prevent data breaches, or ensure compliance with company policies. Mm -hmm. Private investigators might use spyware to gather information and evidence for clients on legal or personal matters. Hackers and organized crime figures might use spyware to steal information to use in fraud or extortion schemes. The silver lining is that Sherlock appears to be expensive to use. According to an internal company document cited in the Haaretz report, a single Sherlock infection costs a client 6.4 million U.S. dollars, which, I mean, that is good at least, but it's not like these companies and governments don't have that. <laughs> well, and it's not like that price isn't going to come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, uh, what do you do in this situation? I don't know. Install your security updates, use ad blockers, turn off JavaScript, which breaks the entire web. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's. Uh, yeah, we're getting into the safe sex. Abstinence seems like it's the best thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The only choice is not to play. Yeah. <laughs> just, just log off. Just stay off the internet from here on out. Listen, y'all, I can quit anytime I want. Trust me. <laughs> so, yeah. Next link. Next link. From Time Magazine, U.S. military asked for help finding missing F-35 jet. Okay. So if you all haven't heard already, (laughs) the U.S. was missing a very expensive jet filled with top secret stuff. A sort of a good news, bad news scenario. (laughs) Wait, so they could track our every whereabouts, but they lost a jet. Right, they can't find a plane. mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) The bad news, right, is the F-35 jet went missing. Uh, The good news, stealth works. Okay, well. Okay, since this article was written, we have actually found the jet, but there's still some interesting things to discuss, like how do you lose an F-35 and how much did that cost? So emergency response teams were trying to find what's left of the F-35 Lightning II jet, which suffered what military called a, quote, mishap on Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. at least according to the social media post by Joint Base Charleston, an air base in South Carolina. The unidentified pilot ejected safely and was taken to the local hospital in a stable condition. What's not in the article is apparently he landed in somebody's backyard oh. and just told them to call emergency services. <laughs> Man, it's a good thing that person didn't have a dog. Like, can you imagine right? <laughs> you've survived and you parachute into a backyard and then this little, yeah. A pack of dogs gets you. Yeah, there's a very funny recording of that 911 call, actually. Oh, wow. The dispatcher just would not deviate from the script. Oh. And I think she was like, so, sir, how far did you fall? And he was like, 2,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> so Joint Base Charleston called on the public to cooperate with military and civilian authorities authorities in the search of the F-35. Lockheed Martin Corp is the manufacturer behind F-35. It's a single seat fighter craft used by militaries all over the world. So it's the stealth plane we let the rest of the world use. We still have some things like F-22s and other secret weapons we don't give to other countries, just FYI. Mm -hmm. And this comes at a price for taxpayers. The F-35 program, the most expensive U.S. program ever, at least that we know about, is projected to cost $400 billion in development and acquisition, oh. plus an additional $1.2 trillion to operate and maintain the fleet over more than 60 years. Now, to be fair, these planes aren't going to be flying in 60 years. Right. Uh, that would mean we'd still be flying jets from the Korean War. We don't. Because <laughs> things become obsolete. So I don't know where that $1.2 trillion number comes from. But it's not inclusive of tracking, apparently. Yeah. And each jet can cost more than 160 million, depending upon the variant. So add that to the cost of the search and rescue for the jet. And you can see why we don't have money to fund low income schools. That's right. That's a a totally (laughs) different rabbit hole. That's not part of this article. Oh, and it's not the first time an F-35 has been in trouble. An F-35B version crashed in 2018. In Beaufort County, South Carolina, something's going on over there because of a manufacturing (laughs) defect and a fuel tube, at least according to the government accounting office. The latest missing aircraft in the U.S. swiftly drew online mockery from postings with notices on milk cartons to mashed up, dude, where's my F-35 movie posters? (laughs) (laughs) 
South Carolina Republican Representative Nancy Mace said on social media, quote, how is there not a tracking device? Well, I'll tell you why, Nancy. The planes are designed that once an ejection happens, all the radio stuff gets scrambled so that it doesn't get discovered easily by the enemy. Or if it is found, all that stuff is really hard to reverse engineer. Because, yeah, theoretically, you're not flying it over your land. You're flying it over someone else's land. Correct. Yeah. So also in in the article, you might be asking, how did the pilot or people on the ground not see it crash? Modern fighter jets are designed to fly and maintain 1G, so get a little technical, but the flight systems will keep that position of the plane at 1G, and a climb and a dive are going straight. So if the pilot passes out, like in a hard turn or something, because of high G forces, they'll eventually recover because the plane moves itself back into a 1G. That's assuming they don't smash into the ground first. Mm. Right. Which means that when the pilot ejected, the plane apparently traveled an additional 50 to 60 miles. Hmm. And wow, were they lucky that thing didn't land in a populated area. Yeah, it could have landed in a backyard, too. Oh, yeah. But it landed in the woods. So as I mentioned in the beginning, they did find it in the woods of Williamsburg County, South Carolina. So if you're in the area, now is the time to break out the old (laughs) metal detector that only ever Uh garnered bottle caps and go get some real treasure. Free F-35 parts. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, this next one is from Ars Technica, and it's called The History of Syphilis is Being Rewritten by a Medieval Skeleton. Uh, Oh. Yeah. I always love a good everything you knew is wrong article because usually I didn't think I knew anything about the thing. So it's like a two for one. Like I get to learn what I was supposed to know and then learn why it's a lie. Yeah. (laughs) So the part we're supposed to know, the established narrative, is that syphilis was introduced to Europe in the late 1400s and caused a sweeping epidemic across the continent. People would spike a fever, have joint pain, and break out into rashes that, and I quote, ripened into bursting boils, ulcers ate away at their faces, collapsing their noses and jaws, working down their throats and airways, making it impossible to eat or drink. Survivors were grossly disfigured. Unluckier victims died. And while they did notice right away that the infections usually started in the genitals, it took them a surprisingly long time to figure out that it was sexually transmitted. The pattern they saw was that it traveled with soldiers who were frequently invading each other at this point in European history. And so perhaps like some other recent pandemics we could name, people tended to label it as a foreigner's disease. The French called it the Neapolitan disease. The English called it the French disease. The Russians blamed the Polish and the Turks blamed all of Christianity. But others started tracing the disease's path a little more dispassionately, and it eventually became clear that the earliest patients had been in Spain in 1493, just as Christopher Columbus and his crew returned from North America. And for people who knew the history up to this point, it's apparently been seen as a kind of fair play punishment to the colonizers, right? We gave them smallpox, they gave us syphilis. But proving the so-called Columbian hypothesis has proved challenging because the symptoms described in these old accounts could apply to several diseases and the bacterium that causes it, Treponema pallidum, was not formally identified until 1905. Now, here's the turning point where they say everything I just told you is wrong because for at least two decades, paleopathologists at various European burial sites have been saying, hey, a lot of these skeletons from before 1492 really seem to have the marks of a syphilis infection in their bones and teeth. And most recently, a team based in Marseille has used DNA analysis to confirm the presence of nucleotides that strongly match up with the T. pallidum genome 
in a skeleton that was buried in province sometime in the 7th or 8th century. And just to be really sure, they extracted antibody proteins from that same skeleton and demonstrated that, yes, this person definitely had an immunological response to a treponema bacterium. On the other hand, it is indisputable that a pandemic of some kind, whose symptoms sound a lot like syphilis, swept through Europe from 1493 to 1495. And if we're saying that syphilis was already present in the population, then what's the explanation for why it suddenly exploded? Well, Sheila Lukart, a syphilis expert and emeritus professor of medicine and global health at the University of Washington, has a theory. She says there are actually several subspecies of treponema, the most notable of which is T. pallidum pertinu, which causes a slightly less horrible disease called yaws, Y-A-W-S. So yaws is more contagious, being spread by any skin-to-skin contact rather than fluid exchange, but it is also much less deadly and occurs mostly in children. Lukart says that while the latest paper strongly implies at several points that their research points to syphilis, that's not actually true. All they've really done is confirmed the presence of treponema in general, and it's entirely possible that the ancient skeletons had yaws, not syphilis. And this does still potentially rewrite the Columbus narrative, Because, you know, let's say there was some divergent evolution and what Columbus brought back was indeed a mutated, far more severe descendant of the Treponema family tree. That still leaves the question of how their shared ancestor got over to North America and would indicate that Treponema is a very, very old bacterial family indeed. Or possibly Columbus and his buddies brought yaws over in the first place to North America and the rapid spread in a fresh population is what allowed the virus to mutate just in time for him to bring it back to Europe a year later. That one feels most likely, but I don't right. know. Maybe, it's the yeah. one that blames Columbus the most, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe I just like that one the most. Right. <laughs> and they do acknowledge potentially Columbus had nothing to do with it, and syphilis was just a new mutation of an existing disease in Europe that just happened to emerge around the same time he returned from North America. Either way, and you will like this, Bradley, we are pretty sure that Columbus himself did contract syphilis. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not happy for anybody. I'm not, I'm not that much of a schmuck. I mean, but if you got to pick somebody, you know, Columbus yeah, deserved it. Like, mm-hmm. Next link. Next link. All right. From Science Alert. Scientists have invented a super slippery toilet and nothing sticks to it. Oh, okay, but not the person. The person can sit on it. It's the ins- <laughs> right, like yeah. <laughs> I, that boy. The right candid camera <laughs> potential for that is insane. But yes, we're talking about substances in particular. And okay, there are some diagrams and images. It should be noted that the substance that they used as an analog for feces is kind of like a chewed up looking piece of like blue bubble gum. So okay. if that squeaks you out. Sorry, they did what they could to sanitize as best they could. Because, yeah, we're talking about a super slippery toilet. And that's because traditional porcelain and ceramic toilet bowls, sometimes things can stick to them. So it's not only unpleasant for bathroom visitors and cleaners alike. It actually wastes a ton of water. Mm. So it was this problem that scientists were trying to tackle by making a nonstick toilet bowl. They used a mixture of plastic and hydrophobic sand grains for the material and fused them together with laser-based 3D printing techniques. 
And the design is actually kind of remarkable as well. It's around a tenth the size of a standard toilet bowl. So maybe this is something they can、uh, pilot test in Asia before、mm. U.S. But they took their design cues from the pitcher plant, which is a carnivorous plant where. When flies get stuck, they sort of like slide down the chute, can't climb their way out. They've given the toilet a charming nickname of Arsft, which stands for Abrasion Resistant Super Slippery Flush Toilet. So Arsft, Arsft, Arsft. They're Arsft. They. Oh wow.、Okay. Yeah. It's it's Arsft with an F T at the end, which is very difficult to pronounce in a way that's truly audible, but. Hey, it was shown to repel synthetic feces as well as multiple substances that the scientists tested. Nothing was able to get a grip on the surface. Everything slid straight down. "Quote: The as-prepared arsed remains clean after contacting with various liquids such as milk, yogurt, highly sticky honey, and notably, even after being abraded to 1,000 cycles of abrasion using sandpaper." The Arsft maintains its record-breaking, super slippery capability, and、hmm. that durability part is actually super clutch because non-stick toilet surfaces have been developed before, but they tend to wear down with repeated flushing. So、hmm. they needed to get something that retained its slipperiness over time, and that's a much better option for replacing conventional materials. Not only that, the 3D printing approach itself enabled scientists to introduce some porousness to the surface. Why would they want to do that on a super slick toilet? Well, only so they could add silicone oil as a lubricant. So that just made it even extra slippier. So less water would be required for flushing and for cleaning, which quickly adds up. "Quote: We've only had a flushing toilet for about a couple of centuries now, but..." We today use over 141 billion liters of fresh water globally every day. That itself is nearly six times the daily water consumption of Africa. No good. So while the rest of the world struggles to access safe, clean water, we need innovations like super slippery arsts. Yeah, the recyclability of the stuff I'm potentially yeah, concerned remains、with. to、and、be seen. The, yeah, <laughs> the only other concern too is the extra liquid, the oil, silicone oil. Yeah, yeah, is that going to make its way into the water system, and how hard is that going to be to pull out? Yeah, or are we just going to start drinking it? You know,、yeah. and then we all have olestra, basically. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like fluoride in the water, except now it's a、uh, Wegovy. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I mean, if all else fails, they can just replace. Teflon with it, like just put it in the cooking pans and don't tell anyone it was originally designed for a toilet. <laughs> <laughs>、right. Next link. Next link. So, staying in the world of materials, this article comes to us from zmescience.com. Archaeologists stunned by 2,900-year-old steel tools in Portugal. So this is another thing that busts up our timelines a little bit because、yeah. steel tools were believed to have only become widespread in Europe during the Roman Empire, which was roughly 30 BC to I think 300 AD or so. But the study shows that steel tools were already in use in Europe around 2,900 years ago during the Final Bronze Age.、Mm. This study was conducted by an international and interdisciplinary team headed by Dr. Ralph Araque Gonzalez from the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Freiburg. 
The researchers conducted geochemical analyses on ancient Iberian steles, upright monuments typically inscribed with information in the form of text, images, or a combination of the two, and found these were made of silicated quartz sandstone. And the implications were immediately resounding for them. Araque Gonzalez says, Just like quartzite, this is an extremely hard rock that cannot be worked with bronze or stone tools, but only with tempered steel. Hmm. So to confirm their hunch that these monuments were etched with steel tools, the researchers analyzed an iron chisel found in Roca do Vigio, Portugal, which also dates back to the Final Bronze Age. They discovered that the chisel was made of heterogeneous yet astonishingly carbon-rich steel. The researchers also conducted an experiment involving a professional stonemason, a blacksmith, and a bronze caster to attempt to work the rock that the stelae were made of using chisels made of different materials. Only the chisel made of tempered steel was able to engrave the stone. Hmm. The study has important implications for the archaeological assessment of iron, metallurgy, and quartzite sculptures in other regions of the world. Until now, it was assumed that it was not possible to produce suitable quality steel in the early Iron Age, and certainly not in the Final Bronze Age. The earliest known production of steel is seen in pieces of ironware excavated from an archaeological site in Anatolia, which are nearly 4,000 years old, dating from 1800 BC. However, iron and steel didn't become abundant materials until around 500 BC, when most Bronze Age civilizations collapsed, paving the way for the huge empires of Rome and Han China. The discovery of the chisel from Roca do Vigio and the context in which it was found suggests that iron metallurgy, including the production and tempering of steel, were probably indigenous developments of decentralized small communities in Iberia, and not due to the influence of later colonization processes. Hmm. It's unclear why steelmaking didn't spread from this region of Iberia to other parts of Europe. Some people like to keep things secret, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's proprietary. What are you talking about? (laughs) Right, And it's advantageous proprietary, so mine. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if they had it, the Iberian Peninsula, then maybe all these other civilizations also independently discovered steelmaking or or some form and just lost a time. Who knows? Also, too, it's not like the Iron Age and the Bronze Age was like, okay, year 30, stop using these things. We're now using iron. (laughs) Right, right. It takes a while. It's done in pieces. Yeah. Ring the bell. Everyone change. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, from Cosmos, a gel that turns hot air into drinking water. Oh. So a team of U.S. researchers has made a hydrogel that can suck clean water out of the air in very hot conditions, which if they figure out how to do it at scale, could be used to provide drinking water in places where access is limited. Mm-hmm. So Professor Guihua Yu at the University of Texas in Austin says, With our new hydrogel, we're not just pulling water out of thin air. We're doing it extremely fast and without consuming too much energy. So hydrogels are 3D networks, often made of long polymer molecules capable of holding large amounts of water. They're already being used in medical, electronic, and engineering research. But until now, they've not been efficient enough to either trap the water from the surrounding air or releasing it when needed. Typically, higher temperatures have been needed to make these hydrogels work. And depending upon the humidity, each kilogram of gel can draw 3.5 to 7 kilograms of water out of the air. So in places like Texas, we wouldn't need heaters to get the water out of the gel. Just put it outside. Because <laughs> we for a already second. live in a heater. <laughs> <laughs> so next, the researchers are figuring out how to scale the technology up and improve its cost efficiency. 
But I, I do have some questions for these scientists. And since they're so close, I might just go there and ask, like, if this yeah, is scaled yeah. up, what happens to all the water in the air? I feel like we need some of that water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it ever going to rain again if we do this? Are they easy to clean? Mm-hmm. How moldy do they get? Mm-hmm. I imagine the water is going to get moldy in that microplastic, but I'm sure they are working on these problems. And sure. someday they'll yeah. share them with us. <laughs> and someday they will share them for a price. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, I've got a quick little fun one here at the end from CNN, but the title is a little bit of a word salad. So first, let's establish some background. Y'all are familiar with the rock band Queen with Freddie Mercury, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the guitarist in Queen is a guy named Brian May. And aside from being a global rock star, he is also apparently an astrophysicist. What? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So May was in the process of getting his Ph.D. in astrophysics when he was asked to join the band in 1971. And obviously we know what choice he made. It wasn't until 2007 that he decided there was no reason he couldn't go back and finish his thesis after all. Which leads us to the headline, Queen's Brian May helped NASA return its first asteroid sample. Now, forgive me for being a killjoy, but I'm going to be a little cynical here for a minute. He's not, like, calculating trajectories or designing rovers or anything like that. He's still very much on the artistic side of things and often seems to be serving in more of a publicity spokesperson kind of role. And there is nothing wrong with that because God knows NASA could use all the popular support it can get. But, for example, when the New Horizons probe officially broke the record in 2019 for the farthest a human craft had ever traveled from the sun, May was asked to write a song to celebrate it. As for whether it's a good song, it's on YouTube. You can be the judge. But as just a sample, it includes the lyrics, The fruits of wishful thinking, we taste them for real, we're off to new horizons, so hold on to the wheel. I think it was Freddie that did a lot of the lyrics in that band. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. (laughs) And to be fair, this latest collaboration with NASA is not music-based, but it is visual arts-based. So seven years ago, NASA launched the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft with a plan to land on the asteroid Bennu, take a sample, and then bring it safely back to Earth. And once the OSIRIS-REx arrived at Bennu, May's job was to use some of the data taken prior to landing and create a stereoscopic image of the asteroid's surface, which helped the team, led by Dante Loretta, decide the best place to safely land. May and Loretta then immediately collaborated on an art book called Bennu 3D, Anatomy of an Asteroid, which, you know, if you're going to send someone on a book tour, you probably want to pick a guy like Brian May who can draw in the crowds, right? And again, there's nothing wrong with that. I just want to acknowledge the good and useful thing he's actually doing and not pretend he's standing there in mission control sweating over the telemetry or whatever. Right. At any rate, the OSIRIS-REx sample has been safely recovered in Utah, And even more exciting is that the sample was just dropped to Earth in a capsule. The spacecraft itself is still out there heading toward another asteroid named Apophis to gather more samples. So we named it Apophis? Yes. (laughs) But that's really cool. And I guess, you know, if you need a rock star to convince you that's cool, I'm fine with that. Whatever it takes to get NASA its funding, you know? Right. But you're right. He's no, like, Hedy Lamarr. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the disturbing secret behind the world's most expensive coffee. These parasitic plants force their victims to make them dinner and jellyfish show how you don't need a brain to learn. 
So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waysper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.